0: Jesus, we owe all to you because we have been bought not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have come to represent us and to live on our behalf before God the Father. And in your life, we find our freedom. Thank you. Now, you've given us your word and your spirit. We pray that you'd open us up to both, that you would speak and that we would hear your speaking. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, several years ago, a man named Robert Salzman woke up in prison weeping. (laughs) But he wasn't weeping because he was in prison, he was weeping because he was actually free. According to a New York Times article, there was a Hollywood director who was riding on the New York subway one day when he looked across the car and he saw Mr. Salzman. And Mr. Salzman, you got to picture a guy just totally tattooed from head to toe, uh, built like Mike Tyson, and this Hollywood director was actually casting a film at the time. He's looking for an ex-con, and he goes, "That's my guy." So he has the courage to go over there, introduce himself, and say, "Would you be willing to audition for this part?" Turns out, Mr. Salzman actually has spent about better part of 51 years, his age, in and out of prison. Uh, He lived in the system. So to speak. So one day, when they're filming in a Long Island prison, it's a movie set, Mr. Salzman takes a break as, you know, long periods of boredom on movie sets. He takes a nap, he falls asleep on one of these cots in a cell. When he wakes up, he's just conditioned to think, this is his old life right? And you think, oh, here I am. And then there's this moment of realization, no, this isn't reality. This is a film. I'm a free man. The door is unlocked. I can get up and walk out. Well, I just wonder, I just wonder what would happen if I one day had a similar experience. If I woke up and realize, oh my goodness, I am not living in my past, I'm not living in the reality of my fears, I'm living in the reality of God's promises. I'm free. The door is open, it's unlocked, and I can go out. And I wonder about you, I wonder what would happen if you had that kind of experience. You know the Bible says in Jesus Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes, promises. That's what we're talking about in this series. What are the promises that God has made to us in His Word, the Scriptures? And what would happen if we trust those promises and allow them not just to be embroidered on our walls, uh, but to actually become the substance of our lives, to shape our lives, to become the reality in which we live and move and have our being? Well today we have a promise that God makes to us about money. I know, I know that's a little surprising, but there is one about money. We find it in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. So, would you pull out a Bible or grab your phone and navigate over to Malachi 3.10? If you're looking at the Pew Bibles, it's page 778. I want everyone to open up so we can read it aloud together as an act of worship. Uh, if you're not looking at the Pew Bible, uh, uh, then you just go to the New Testament and turn left. Malachi is the last Old Testament book. Malachi, the best-addressed Italian prophet. Um, he's, you'll find that it's, a, it's the last words in the Protestant or, or organization of the a Bible. And if you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's Word aloud together. Listen for this great promise. When I'm done reading, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Will anyone... Uh, no. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. There's the promise. Just take that in. To open the windows of heaven is to open the prison of our own money, yours and mine. This is a promise for those who worry about money. Anybody here? See, ancient Israel is, is worried about uh, money. It's waking up in its worries. little background. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, living around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, probably 460 BC. Israel has come back from exile. Mm, It's not quite the way it was supposed to be. Persia is still in power. We rebuilt the temple and the walls, but man, it's nothing special there. It's not the glory days for sure. This is a time of real worry in Israel. And, And apparently worry about finances. Will we have enough? And then there's this promise, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. Now, to the ancient mind, water equals money. You have to know that. Or at least water is where money comes from. In popular imagination, when God created the heaven and the earth, He separated the waters below from the waters above by putting up there an expanse or a firmament, some of our translations say. We call it the sky, the semi-permeable membrane that's up there, keeping the waters above from coming down and drowning us in the waters below. God creates space, and He puts all this water up there. Actually, the Hebrew word for heaven is Hashemayim, and it really comes from the word for water. Uh, Hamayim, Hamayim, so Hashemayim means heaven, it's it's a place above the waters. And every now and then though, some of that water leaks through, doesn't it? And We know that in Seattle, every now and then you get some of that water just kind of coming through, as though it were coming through windows up there in the firmament. And when it comes, so too comes the money. Because remember, these are shepherds and farmers, and when the water comes, there's water for the sheep, there's water for the crops, and crops and sheep, they're basically the financial instruments of the ancient world, right? You could hold them, you could trade them, you could liquidate them for cash. Basically, it's it's the portfolio, it's the mutual fund of the ancient world. So the Israelites, they open up their tent flap each morning, they look out over their portfolio. Grain up 4%. Grapes flat, sheep down two and three quarters, right? Money. So apparently Israel was worried, but God has a promise for their money. The prison door of their worry is unlocked. See if I will not. Pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Put me to the test. Lots of places God says, don't put the Lord to the test. On this one, he goes like... Why don't you put me to the test on this one, okay? This is interesting. Now it wasn't until I met Jesus in college that I realized that the door of my own prison had been unlocked. And if you'll let me, I'll be a bit personal with you today, a little bit of my own story. One summer, I think it was after my sophomore, freshman, sophomore year, I came home from college And I went into my bedroom, and I just opened up my dresser, and I emptied out all my drawers, all the clothing. I pulled them out, and I gave almost all of it away. Uh, I I kept two pair of pants and two white shirts. They were identical, and I would just alternate that one set every day. (laughs) Very boring. My mom was concerned. My parents were like, what in the world has happened to George? And so she'd go out to Costco and try to replenish. She'd buy the like 20 pack of socks and she'd bring them back and I'd keep one pa- pair of socks and give all the rest away. <laughs> People who are without homes and so forth are, are around where I lived. I was working in the inner city ministry. I started working in inner city ministries and a very simple lifestyle, so my shoes. But by the time I met my wife, Anne, which was just after college, or just at my last year of college, actually, we met, um, were so covered with duct tape, you couldn't even see the sneaker uh, underneath, right? Super classy date. Um, I don't know what she saw, but she went for it anyways. <clears throat> now why did I do that? <laughs> what was going on? It's a good question. My parents really want to know. It's not because I thought I had too much. It's because I thought too much of money. And I learned that. I, I just discovered. I had thought that it is money that makes life full. See this, this was at the root of my ambition. I was pursuing money because I thought money was meant to make me happy. And I was re- reading books on finance, this was the 80s. Uh, And and I had this imaginary portfolio of stocks. I got the penny stock journal. And and people in my my class said, someday we're all going to work for you, George, which is not a compliment that I, I mean, I'm a little bit ashamed of it now. It's just very intense and focused on business and making money because I thought, this is how you make yourself happy. Ann Landers has a column she wrote years ago in which she published a letter of a woman speaking about her uncle. She said, my uncle is the tightest man in the world. Loved money. And this man, was, when he got sick, he told his uh, wife at the time, would you make me a promise? I, I want to try to take my money with me. So pull the money out from underneath my mattress and put it in my casket at my f- funeral and so I can take it with me. And she you know, dutifully made the promise, and then she kept it. When he died, she, before blowing the, the body into the grave, she went out, she got the money out of the mattress, she put it in a bank, she wrote a check, and she put the check on his chest as the casket went down, (laughs) the world's tightest man. could have been me, it could have been me. Money went way too much for me. And then I met Jesus, and boy did He make a change. I've told you before I carried my Lanta around in a backpack that my college, my college career because he was making so many changes. I was reading the Bible with a bunch of guys on the crew. I was an oarsman. And we were discovering these promises, incredible promises. Like Matthew 6, 24 through 33 was one that really spun my head. Listen to what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, he says, do not worry about your life. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, He knows, but but you strive first for for the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well." And I'm like, what? What? Does anybody believe that? I mean, what would you do with a promise like that? I'm I'm asking myself these questions, so here's the one that really gnawed at me. How could I trust Jesus with my eternal salvation and not trust Him with my wallet? That one stung it got me thinking is it possible i asked myself that i could trust jesus not just with my religious life but also my financial life because here in these words jesus seems to be saying you focus on me you just focus on me and my work in the world okay and then delegate all the anxiety about what you're going to wear what you're going to eat your life your money delegate all that to me the father in heaven will take care of you he loves you and i'm thinking would this be really irresponsible to believe and to live out? Or would it in some way be faithful? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seems to be saying pretty much what the Lord had said to ancient Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen to this. He said, I'm going to put you in the promised land. I'm going to make you fabulously healthy and wealthy and all these good stuff's going to happen to you. And then he says, do not say to yourself, My power and the might of my own hand had have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. Wow. Hard to understand, but I feel like Jesus is endorsing this. What if I act as though that promise is really true? I'm learning that it's, it's not money that makes my life full. God's saying, George, it's my love. It's my love that makes your life full. And whatever money you have comes to you from me, so do not worry about your life. Now, I realize there are a lot of problems with this, right? But I want to say, the noise you just heard is the sound of a prison door opening in my heart. Bzzzt, click. I'm free, I am free, and life is not what I thought it was. See, my prison was worry about money. Like prisoners say, they grew up in the system. I grew up in the system. I was deeply institutionalized in a culture of worry about money, deeply habituated to worry about money. And all of a sudden, here is Jesus breaking into my life saying, hey George, you're not living in the reality of your past. You're not living in the reality of your fears. This cell that you're in, it's not your story. I got a different story for you. It's called." The gospel is called, it just means good news. Good news, you have a father in heaven who cares for you. Good news, I'm the one who meets your needs. Good news, I've got life abundant for you. Turn to me, focus on me, my work in the world, and and we'll take care of it. Wow, the door unlocked. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you. An overflowing blessing. That's a promise. Now, it is a promise that comes with a practice. Let's talk about this practice. Look at what comes right before the promise. It's in the same verse. You read it. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, that's a practice. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So, what is the full tithe? little history here, Um, of course, it's a percentage. Uh, In ancient Israel, it was a percentage of their annual income. According to the law of Moses, the Israelites were to bring 10% of their annual gain to the temple. And for them, grain, wine, oil, fruit, newborn, chickens, calves, whatever, bring 10% of that. Actually, if you look carefully, Uh, at the uh, Old Testament, Moses' law, there were three tithes. If you add them all up, they add up to 23 and one third percent. Uh, So there's a percentage. Now this percentage indicated two things to the Israelite, that their giving should be sacrificial and it should be faithful. It was to be sacrificial because they were to give the very best uh, of of the gain, very best, the unblemished, the best lamb. Oh no, that one? Yeah, that's the one you give. Sacrificial. You should give to the point where it would affect your lifestyle, the Lord is teaching them. Make a sacrifice. And then faithful. In other words, you know, they, they were to give their first fruits, which is give the tithe before the full harvest. Give the first 10% before the remaining 90% has even been realized. Now you can only do that by faith. He's saying, trust me. Give proactively first fruits. Sacrificial, faithful, the percentage. So that's the full tithe. Let's think about the practice, because there's a practice that comes with this, and that giving of that tithe regularly. uh, There are two purposes to this practice. One's objective, the other is subjective. Here's the objective one. It's to expand impact. To expand impact. The tithe went for two reasons, the poor and the ministry. The Levites received the tithes, one of the 12 tribes, and they were given the ministry, uh, the ministry of reconciliation that the temple itself was meant to represent. Reconciliation comes from the ministry of the the Levites. They point us to Jesus, the great high priest. And then there was a portion of the tithe that was dedicated to the poor, uh, the the immigrant, the, the orphan, the widow could be supported in Israel. So justice, right? Ministry and the poor. There was, there was an impact that came from that tithe that was meant to be seen and, and expanded throughout Israel. That's the objective purpose. And then the subjective purpose is more internal. It's to stretch your heart. It's to open your heart to trust God more. Open your heart to believe he's not just out there, but he's actually active down here. His love can become tangible in our lives. And you pick up a little bit on this when you read the context around this practice. Verse eight, I started reading it at the beginning. let your eye go up the page. Hear the question, will anyone rob God, the Lord says? In other words, look, all this belongs to me. I have a claim on all that you are and all that you have. Actually, it all belongs to me. It's all an expression, it's all a tangible expression of my love. Which, by the way, the the letter begins with love, an beautiful expression of love. Right at the beginning of the letter, it's an Old Testament prophet. He goes, I have loved you, the Lord says to Israel through Malachi. And then in verse 10, when you just drop down a little bit, the Lord says, put me to the test. In other words, God says, give me a chance to prove myself trustworthy in your life. Not just with your salvation, but with your whole life. Yes, even your financial life. Would you trust me enough? Put me to the test. Would you open your hands in order to open your heart for more of me? You can trust me, he's saying. So this, this is what, what the full tithe is. It's a percentage and a practice. I'm reminded about two men who were marooned on a deserted island, and one of them was pacing back and forth, the other was just laid on the beach tanning himself, and the guy who was walking goes, what in the world are you thinking? We're in a crisis. How could you be so laid back? And he goes, ah. I make at this point in my life about $100,000 per month and I tithe at church, my pastor will find me. (laughs) It's true, I will find you. Wear a life jacket just the same. Two things, let me say though, the the tithe is not, and I hope you hear this, two things that the tithe is not. First of all, it is not a guarantee of health and wealth, okay? This is not a prosperity gospel, We really have to understand, this is not a guarantee of health and wealth. And I can prove it even from the Old Testament, Job, if you read the book of Job, we're told Job is fastidious, actually I think overly fastidious about his offerings. He's, we're told he's a righteous man, so Job tithes. And what happened to Job? He lost everything. Think of the followers of Jesus, those 12, 11 apostles. How did life work out for them? Last I knew they didn't end up in a mansion with a, with a boat and a second home, no. They struggled, they suffered, they knew what it was like to have God meet their needs, their daily bread, but not necessarily to become wealthy. That's not the promise. No, sometimes God's blessings are material, particularly under the old covenant, but they're always blessings. Many times they're spiritual blessings. So that's the first thing we have to understand. Secondly, there is no New Testament mandate to tithe. We are not commanded to tithe in this way. There's no 23 and a third percent. Jesus, the only time tithing comes up in the New Testament, words of Jesus, He's talking to Pharisees, still under the Old Covenant, and they've got this practice of tithing dill and mint. But no, under the New Testament, tithing is meant to be free. I mean, giving is meant to be free. It's a free, joyful expression of gratitude for what God has done for us in in His grace and in Jesus Christ. And we look at the examples of people in the New Testament, some give more, some give less, some give all, but each one gives as the Holy Spirit leads and according to their own ability, the text says. So tithing as a literal practice, it fades away as history goes, but the promise holds, and I want to get you to really understand this, the promise holds. And I don't really know how it works, but there's some kind of like Newtonian physics that goes on. Every action prompts an equal and opposite reaction and every act of generosity prompts a response from heaven that, that, that the text calls blessing. And it's not just the Old Testament. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Now it's like, why is he giving farming advice? No, this is giving talk. This is not farming. He's using farming as an illustration because they understood that. The one who sows or gives sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is Paul saying, like, trust God. Each of you must give as you've made up your mind, okay, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A friend of mine says, if you can't give cheerfully, give to me and I'll give cheerfully. <laughs> <laughs> and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. see the the blessing? I think he's reading Malachi. So that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. God wants to tank you up so you're always ready to share. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, bread for the food coming down from heaven, remember, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness, which isn't just always material blessing, but righteousness is about being conformed to the image of Jesus. It's about becoming like Christ. That's what we want in our lives, right? And Paul says, you'll be enriched in every way for your great generosity. The promise remains. And I don't understand it, but I want to claim it. And I want to live it. Because I want the blessing, and I want the blessing for you, for us as a church. That's why we're talking about this. Give, God says, sacrificially and faithfully, through the church, Paul says, so, so we can corporately expand our impact in the world and corporately stretch our hearts to trust more of Jesus. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That's the practice. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. That's the promise. Wow. So let me just tell you what that looks like in my own life. I said I'd be personal today. I just want to tell you, I I, I do practice this because I keep needing to be reminded where life comes from. I keep waking up in the prison cell of my own worries. There was a time in my life where I thought, okay, yeah, I've broken the power of money and my life, I gave all this stuff away, I worked among the poor for a season, and and so I've got that lesson, what else do you have to teach me, Jesus? I'm ready. But it doesn't work that way, actually. Living in America, um, knowing my own heart, I have to say, I am still struggling with this. Every week, if not every day, I wake up in the prison cell going, oh, I'm worrying about money. I'm checking the stock market. I'm looking at the statements when they come in. And God's saying, really? Are you still working on that? So he gives me this practice. I grew up in a system. I'm habituated to it. So here's what I do. Here's what this looks like for me. Every year, at the end, towards the end of the year, like November, December, my wife and I sit down, it's usually a weekend, and we create a giving plan. That's what we call it, a giving plan. And here's how we do it. We project our income for the next year. We do that by looking at last year's tax returns. We look at the AGI, adjusted gross income, because we want to capture both our investment income as well as our wage income. We look at what we made last year, and we make some adjustments for next year. And this is just a faith exercise. We don't really know. But if we feel like we could stretch and give even more, we, we change the number. If we feel like, oh, things are going to change financially, we change the number down. <clears throat> Whatever it is, we, get, we come up with that number. And then what we do is we typically give 10% of our wages to UPC, at uh, that first Tithe, portion of the tithe, goes to UPC. And then another percentage on top of that goes for the other kingdom ministries that we love and feel strongly about, we want to be involved with. So we give, and a lot of that's coming out of our investment income. Uh, And then what we do is we give. So we have a giving plan, we have a giving practice. Here's how the practice works. We give a number of large gifts at the end of the year for tax purposes. And then we give smaller weekly gifts here at UPC uh, for heart purposes, I, I want to do it here every week to remind myself that my money comes from Jesus, and that my giving is an act of worship. And so if you pay attention, you'll see either Ann or me pull out our phones. We do it on push pay, and right while we're worshiping, and we, we make a transfer out of our checking account to UPC. So this is a small amount, but it's a tangible way that we remind ourselves that we belong to Jesus, right? So we have a giving plan. We have a giving practice. And I'll say, yes, it is joyful, but I have to be honest and tell you, it's also at times very uncomfortable for us, because we're really stretching. And particularly after that weekend in November or December, I have a pit in my stomach, and I'm thinking, are we overextending ourselves? And it raises the question, are we trusting in Jesus? So that's, that's not easy, but there's such freedom when we say yes, and then we see the, what, what God does through our generosity, both in the world and in ourselves. So I know you have so many things, good things you you can do with your money, and I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money, but, but let me do this. Let me just share with you five reasons why I tithe at UPC. Here's my own personal why. I'll just run through these. When I give to UPC, number one, I put Jesus first. I already mentioned this. I see it as putting Jesus first in my life. So giving becomes an act of worship. I break the power of money in my life. I profane the idol of money by laying my finances at the feet of Jesus. Secondly, I meet the world's greatest need. I believe, Bill Bright used to say, what's the, most, what's the most important thing that's ever happened in your life? And most Christians will say, well, of course, coming to know Jesus Christ as my savior. And what's the second, so what's the most important thing you can do for anybody else? Well, help them come to know Jesus Christ as their savior, right? So I feel like when we give through UPC, we're addressing the deepest issue that the world faces, and that's alienation from God and the need for reconciliation in Jesus Christ. So I'm meeting the world's greatest need. Third, I invest in my own transformation, and yes, I'm being selfish here, I'll just own it, but, but I give money where I, I, where I, I uh, get the most. And it's you all that actually helped me in this process of transformation that I'm in as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I want to continue to, to put tools in your hands to make that process better, even for me selfishly. Fourthly, I, here when I give at UPC, I can follow my money into ministry, right? I can get to it's not some distant organization I don't really know anything about. This is my family. I'm, I'm serving with my brothers and sisters, and I actually get to see then people. Coming to faith in Christ, I get to see kind of the fruit of God's work in, in our midst. So I follow my money into ministry. And then five, I make sure by giving to UPC that Jesus gets the credit. Not some organization, not some anonymous donor pool, not the board of directors at this or that, but Jesus. I just feel like when the body of Christ shows up in the world and does what Jesus does, he gets the credit. And I want to invest in that. So that's why I give to Jesus at UPC. And then there's this promise. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Brothers and sisters, that is a promise I have seen God keep in my life again and again. And it's not hyperbole to say it is literally changing my life. He is changing my life. So here's my challenge for you. Try it. Try it. Take God at his word. Give God a chance to prove that you can trust him, not just with your salvation, but with your finances, with all of life. Put God to test. He's the one that says it, not me. So here's what this could look like. Forget about the 10%. It gets in the way, I think. But do think about a percentage. I think percentage can be a very helpful tool. Use it as a tool. Do you know that most of us really have no idea what percentage of our income we give? We don't know. Actually, most Americans have no idea what they spend or what they make. So the first step is just to know. Take a night, an evening or a weekend, and figure out how much you make. Look at your taxes, pay stubs, bank statements, add up all the income. And then when you've done that, figure out what you give. Uh, Look at receipts or your taxes, whatever, add all that up. And then figure the current percentage. Okay, for those of you who are like me or English majors, let me tell you how you do this. You divide what you make by what you give. Okay? Uh, So you you get a number. That number is your percentage right now. I don't care if it's after tax or before tax. It doesn't matter. Just get the number. Now what you do is you ask the Lord to give you a new number. And maybe it'll be the same. Maybe it'll be different. You might ask him to stretch your heart. To stretch. And so, so if you're at 2%, maybe it's next year I'm going to go to 3%. Maybe, maybe if you're at 5%, you're going to like, I'm going to try 10. Next year I'm, I'm just going to double it. Whatever it is, ask the Lord to give. He'll, he'll speak to you. And then open your hands in order to stretch your heart. Listen, hear this. If you're new to Jesus, if you're new to UPC, I, I don't want you to feel you need to give a penny here at UPC. I hope you hear me say that. The first step here is to, is to come to know Jesus, is to come to know the, ch- the church that you're a part of. Listen, I make no apologies for asking people to give at UPC, because I know the incredible impact here in the city and around the world that your giving has. So I think it's an awesome place to give. But I know that a message like this can come across like a funding appeal or self-serving. So I just want to say, if you don't know us enough to trust us with your money at this point, then don't give to UPC, but do give give elsewhere. Lots of great churches and ministry doing wonderful kingdom stuff. Find an organization that's re- reducing uh, greenhouse gases. Find an organization that's caring for the poor, that's trying to end trafficking. Find one that's committed to something that like, your heart resonates with and that resonates with the heart of God in Jesus Christ, and just give. Give that percentage there. But... On the other hand, let me say, if this is your church home, if you feel like you keep getting drawn back to this place, if you're connecting to Jesus here and starting to connect to others here, well, I have a challenge for you. I want to I ask you to make this the place where your giving begins and where your giving grows because this is your church family. So think and pray about that. Just know, God's not trying to get more from you, your money. He's trying to get more to you, blessing. He's trying to get, get more through you, impact. I think, in short, what he's really saying to us is, I just want you to get your foot off the hose. <laughs> just get your foot off the hose. Let my blessing pass through you. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if we did that, if all of us together stretched our hearts and expanded our impact together on this city and the world. I mean, this is what the Lord wanted Israel to do after the exiles. They reconstructed the people of God. And I believe this is what the Lord wants to do here as we come out of the pandemic and he reconstructs this family of God we call UPC. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. Well, I don't actually know what first put Robert Salzman in a prison cell. I I don't know that part of the story. But I I do know the Hollywood director... He said this in the New York Times, Robert Salzman woke up with tears in his eyes, tears in his eyes, a big burly guy, because for the first time in his life, he didn't have to stay there. And I don't know what you're struggling with, but the good news of Jesus Christ is that whatever it is, you don't have to stay there. You do not have to stay there. We believe in transformation here. This is our mission. Jesus changes lives. So we're invited to stretch our hearts towards God, because God has stretched his heart towards us in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It's what we call the good news. Remember his great promises. His word says, God so loved the world, he gave. That's his heart. So he says, put me to the test. His word says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, me, yes. And so I said, put me to the test. His word says, he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else I care for you? Put me to the test." Yeah, so at the end of the day God has already opened the windows of heaven and it's not just water that comes down, it's His Son, Jesus Christ, as if to say, friends, It's my love for you that gives you life. It's my love for you that meets your needs. It's my love for you that keeps you safe now and for eternity. It's my love that gives to you, my love that gives you more when you give in my name so that we can give through you. I supply seed to the sower. I will fully satisfy every need of yours according to my riches in Christ Jesus. Put me to the test. So whatever it was that put Mr. Salzman in that cell, it was the payment of that debt that let him go. And I wanted to say, finally, if you do not yet know the God who paid his debt and my debt and your debt, the most important decision you could make today is not to give, but to receive, to come to Jesus. You can do that today by pressing the button in the chat, by coming down and talking to our prayer team or myself after the service. Later you can go to upc.org slash Jesus and click the Pray With Someone button or say yes to Jesus. What could be more important? What could be more important? When you look to the cross of Jesus for the full payment of your debt before a holy God, the clearing and the canceling of your sin, in that moment the sound that you hear is the sound of freedom click. You are free. Just don't be surprised if tears should come to your eyes in that moment because he's just walked into your cell to wake you up and tell you, you're not living in the reality of your past. You're not living in the reality of your fears. You're living in the reality of God's promise. You're living with me. Brothers and sisters, the door is open. Let's pray. Jesus, you gave John a vision and you said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with them and they with me. Jesus, you are the good shepherd who not only leads us through the shadowy of the valley of death, but also who sets a table for us. You come to us as a servant, as a host, to prepare a banquet of reconciliation in our presence. Oh, Jesus, we are so hungry, we come to this table, we're so thirsty, we come to this table to receive from you, not just words, but the substance, the physical substance of eternal life. We don't understand that, but we're here to receive it. Thank you, in Christ's name, amen.